0: If it's sort of challenging, then you're not really learning either, you know, so it's having those sort of stretch goals as well, like having, I don't, and it's really hard, isn't it? I think that's why people sort of stay where they are sometimes.
1: Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership, and I have the absolute pleasure today of spending time with a friend. She has spent my 20 plus years working for large tech companies. Companies such as BBC, Sky, Amazon. She's a leisure consultant now. She's also a well being culture, the public speaker, now working with amazing organizations such as the Warner Media, HarperCollins, UCL, Spotify, Naked Wines, just to name a few. She's also created this amazing audiobook called The Power Within You, which I absolutely recommend. Manta Guerra shares today some of her history and some of her story. We discuss racism she experienced from childhood and going to a primary school where there were only just a few Asian um, kids in that space. We talk about how badly she did at school and how actually she was forced to pivot from what she originally wanted to do, which was psychology, ironically enough, and ended up being in computer science. And funny enough, right now, what she does right now, actually is linked with psychology (laughs) and how the brain works and how people operate. It's funny how things kind of go around and around and around about, don't you? We also talk about glass ceilings and how she faced the glass ceiling and how that led to her actually quitting a successful career and pivoting into something else. We talk about being open, um, collaborative, having diverse, inclusive cultures, which is what she built at one organization that she worked for. We talk about how no one thought of her as a leader. We talk about how she was a people pleaser and how that actually created conflict that she was trying to avoid and therefore she had to learn the hard way we talk about the realness of what it's like to actually fire someone and other experiences that she's had a long career journey and then we talk about not burning bridges how she never dreamt her whole life until she was 41. And now she's achieving amazing things and dreaming even bigger and better dreams. It's never too late. Like this this conversation today touches on so many areas from mental health, to looking after yourself, to changing careers, to pivoting to emotional regulation, dealing with your inner critic and so much more. Let's jump into today's episode, which I know you want to just sit back, take it all in and listen again. But more importantly, After you've done that, give us some feedback. How would you find today's episode? Let's jump into it. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, thank you. How are you? That's a lovely intro. I appreciate that. I appreciate you as well. It's uh, been a journey, I know, for both of us. Yeah. I
1: think it was quite good to have these people who understand the ups and the downs and the struggles and everything you're kind of navigating and people just keep it real with you. And it's definitely been like that from the job, which I think was a, I'm sure it was a random, I don't know how we even got talking. Was it uh how did we get talking? I'm sure it was a random LinkedIn but message. It,
0: it was a LinkedIn message. I think it was, we connected about leadership consultancy. Yes. Leadership. And then we said, let's meet for a coffee. Got on really well, had a chat on the phone. In King's Cross, I think it was. Yeah, it was oh, King's Cross. Sure yeah. Out. yeah, yeah. It was way back. <laughs> way back, right? That's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> and realised that we got on really, really well and just got to know each other and hopes that we could connect and work together one day as well. And I think we are still looking for that project to work on together. But, um, you know, it'll come along, I know. It'll come in the right
1: time. It definitely will. But it just goes to show, isn't it, that things can start out of nowhere and you get to Absolutely. build real relationships with people, which has been quite good. I always go way back with, with everyone I talked to. So let's go back to, what was it like as a teenage mentor? What was the dream then?
0: Teenage mentor was hard being a kid. I think, you know, I grew up in Northwest London and Harrow You know, quite a white school. I, you know, and it was, so it was a few Asians, no black students at all back then. Now it's all Indian basically, but back then it was really hard to be myself. I wasn't really sure where I fit in because I suffered a lot from racism and bullying in my teenage years at school. So it was a really difficult time for me, I think. And, you know, you kind of come from an Indian background, you kind of set expectations as well. So you kind of set out, your goals are set out for you almost, right? Like you should do well in school, go to university, get a degree, get married, do well in a career, which is d- dentist, lawyer, doctor. <laughs> Well, that sort of stuff, which I never actually did and um, did really badly in my exams, but I was never sure about what I wanted back then. And I think it got closer when I was probably 17, 18 years old to think about psychology actually. And then psychology I was really interested in, but I never got the, the I never really studied. I, I got quite bored quite quickly. So I was winging was exams and that sort of stuff. So, so I did my GCSEs, got through those at A-levels, but did quite badly and couldn't get into the uni that I wanted for psychology. So I ended up doing computer science. But computer science when <laughs> it turned out to be really good because <laughs> it really set up my career for 20 years. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't too bad. I wasn't with focus when I was a teenager, you know, and I think that I want to help young people to find that focus as well, because we're just not sure, you know, we're not sure of ourselves. We lack confidence. We think we're not good enough. And those sorts of things really played with me, and I was very shy back then as well. Massive lo- low self esteem, and uh, yeah, it was super tough being a teenager.
1: The thing that was part of that low self self esteem at that age, in particular, was down to the experiences you did have at school and all that bullying, all that kind of stuff. And that kind of became part of your your persona. You took on what was what people were saying to you, which was not yours to carry, but you kind of became your part of your identity.
0: It did. It did. You can't change the colour of your skin, but I wish I could have back then, if that makes sense, you know, because I felt like there was something wrong with me. You know, I felt like I wasn't good enough. And when you're in that state, you're like, well, it it does carry you into adulthood as well, right? Like when you're called a packy or go back home or being pushed around or whatever it is, it stays with you for a very long time. And, you know, that racism, you know, I haven't encountered overt racism for many years. It was definitely when I was a lot younger, but I experienced that you know, throughout school and university, I think as well. And it does stay with me because you think, well, if I go for a career, like, am I just going to, like, no one looked like you in senior positions. And you're like, how am I going to navigate my career? So you just kind of coast your day to day and just kind of hope it goes okay and goes well. And like, you know, get money coming in and have a good time and get a mortgage and all that sort of stuff as well. But Yeah, it just sticks with you and it becomes part of your identity as well.
1: Did you break through that? Because you managed to work your way to some senior leadership positions in in those sectors I talked to at the top. So even at that period of time, had you already started to shed some of that and change that identity and recognise that you were actually good at, you were perfect the way you were and all that? Or was that just going through the motions and you still pushing through that excellence?
0: So when I did my computer science degree, I... Became a junior PM when we, after I graduated, basically, a couple of years after I was a coder for a bit first. And when I got really good at project management in these companies, I decided to go contracting because that was quite lucrative as well. So I thought, well, I'm really good at what I do. I'm going to go contracting. So I went contracting for several years, but it's just doing the same job again and again somewhere else, right? So I went to Sky twice, went to the BBC, went to Amazon, I was contracting around these companies. And I think I contracted because I thought I was able to get. Further than being a project manager, so I thought well, I was make some cash from it, right? Like it's you know it's one of those things. So I'm not good at what I do, but I don't think I can step up because I'm not sure if I'm good enough to do that. But it got to a point. I think I was like in my early 30s. No, I wasn't. I was in my mid 30s by then. That I thought, do you know what? I'm not fulfilling my purpose. Something's missing in my life. I can't do this anymore. The money is great, but I'm not finding any benefit in this. So my boss at the time in Sky basically said, do you know what? I've come across this guy. He's a Swedish company. He's over in London and he wants to meet someone to join the team, like someone with your experience. And I was like, cool. So I met with him. His name is Michael Lance, He's CEO of a company called Xido. And so I met with him and he sat down, we had a coffee and he, he looked at my CV. He's like, I've never seen so much with such great experience in this field. And at the end of that conversation, he said, you can create any role you want in this company. Just tell me what you want, and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> it was nuts." So I called myself a global program director. I was like, "Yeah, sounds really good," <laughs> <laughs> and instantly became part of his senior leadership team. And literally, when I joined, the first thing we do I went to Hong Kong for a, a, a bit of a jolly and meeting other people around the world. But soon after that, then I became promoted to head of delivery. Then I was managing about sixty people, and because of him. I had the opportunity to do that. And I do think to myself, is it because he was Swedish? Is it because he wasn't from here? You know, and that's really, I don't know if it's bad to say, but would I have got the same opportunity in a British company? And I just don't think I would have. Is that bad to say?
1: It's not bad to say though. It's not bad to say because it's not like you didn't have, other people couldn't see your experience. They had the same opportunity to see their experience, but actually he was able to have a conversation with you. I think there's something around what you just said around how not Just look at it always on paper, it's there, that's all there, that's all playing, but it's actually seeing the person. So, I think there's something around talking to you and spending time with you. It kind of when we talk about recruitment, where you can easily see someone's experience and you see their name, and there's a bias that shows up straight away, which I've experienced, you've experienced as well, as opposed to actually he met with you, had a conversation with you, got to know the human. Your experience on papers are basic, but then also meet you adds that next level of humanity to it. It's like, oh, what's she going to fit to my my company? So I think it's a Bishop belt.
0: And he didn't see anything else. He didn't see anything around colour or gender, whatever it was. It was just like, you're really good at what you do. And it was just that focus. You know, I want to be able to get you on board because of your experience. And he honestly literally changed my life from that point onwards. And I wasn't that young. I was in my mid to late thirties at that time it was a lot of responsibility to do. Right? I had to learn so much. So it wasn't just doing that. I was actually growing the London office you know, I grew it from like six of us to 30. So I was kind of managing the London office and doing contracts and hiring and firing and responsible for P&Ls and that sort of stuff as well. So I was like, and, you know, things like one of my work colleagues got pregnant and we had no maternity policy in place. So things like that, you know, kind of putting things together. So I was shaping it and I realised that it was, I, I had so much fun doing it because I had never had the opportunity to shape a culture before and and I was able to put my stamp on how I thought work culture should be, which is open, collaborative, accepting, diverse. And so I made it my mission for that company, for that London office to be diverse. And I got women over from different countries. So, so I got someone over from Hong Kong, a young woman to come over and, and help us with a uh, software development. I helped someone transfer from Mexico Guadalajara to Sweden and um, she's still there basically um, with her husband now and two kids you know, making sure that people could move around and really help them to live the life that they want. So for me, it was like not just doing this role, it was all the stuff around it, which really was amazing. What was it like firing someone? It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That is the worst thing about being a leader, though. No? I didn't feel so bad with contractors. I was like, Oh, by the way, you know, your contract's coming to an end and we might just yeah. need it early.
1: <laughs> You're one of those people they, they spend that time.
0: <laughs> Oh, it's crazy, you know. Uh, but when it came to firing, I found that the most difficult actually, when it came to permanent staff, it was really hard because, you know, my direct reports, I had eight direct reports and they were were all similar ages to be fair and you know no one taught me me to be a leader so I was just kind of winging it a little bit as well like but I was still bringing I had that high empathy emotional intelligence but I was a people pleaser you know I wasn't as as I could be I avoided conflict that's not a very good thing to have when you're trying to lead a big team right a people and there was a change that was happening in our team and I had to move um, someone from one position to the other which meant taking away his line management responsibilities. He didn't take it very well. So we had to sort of find a way to, he said he didn't want to do it. Unfortunately, we had to make him redundant. And it was like the worst experience I've ever had. I brought in an outsourced HR person in our meeting. And we, we started talking about, you know, redundancy and that sort of stuff. And he was like, you are disgusting, you're this, you're that, you know. And it was just like relentless And it was like one of the most awful experiences I think I've had. And that happened twice actually in that company, to be fair. Someone called me, said to me that I was like, their old boss is like 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 a psychopath. And that was in Sweden as well. And it was just like, it was just really, that part of leadership was really hard for me. And I think, I look back at it now, and I think, what could I have done differently? You know, how could I communicated better to that and avoided it getting to that situation and that point as well? It was really hard, man. You know, like uh, that part of it, I don't miss at all.
1: That's kind of why I wanted to really draw it out because there are a lot of things when people talk about leadership, where it's glossed over. Right? Like, yeah, you want to be a leader, you're going to have a power, you're going to have people working for you, you're going to have managing and leading people. It's super hard because you never know what to expect. When it comes to having those difficult conversations, which is why I say it's one of the hardest things for a lot of leaders to do, it's like, oh, I, mean, I love what you said, like, you said to yourself, like, I was a people pleaser. And you have people like, that's not a very really good thing. I'm like, no, that's everything. I'm like, no, because it, <laughs> it can lead to other things and like, you can create new behaviors or behaviors that actually affect your wider team because of how you feel. And it can be very, very selfish at times. You're trying to explain this to people, unless they walk through it, is really, really hard for them to understand. And that's why I really loved when he says, like, actually, no, this was firing people was hard. I had to learn and I was never taught how to do it. So I was learning the hardware, learning the job as well.
0: And the thing is, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it was amazing to get this opportunity. When I first joined the company, I wasn't managing anyone. And then I managed a lot of people. But I didn't really know how to do it. If I knew what I know now, I would have done things a lot differently, you know, but I had to go through that painful process Learn and understand myself. You know, I was just going through life, and I got this role, and I just didn't know how to be a leader. And I sort of read books in it and that sort of stuff as well. It just, it didn't. But the thing that changed me and changed my life was getting coached, like getting having a leadership coach. Because when I was really struggling, uh, my HR director in Stockholm said, "Look, you know, why don't you try coaching? Like, you know, think about this in that, that way." And I was like, "Yeah, that'd be great." Never done coaching before. I met a company in Sweden and again, I was like, well, I'm British Indian, she's Swedish. I don't know how this is going to work because we're from very different cultures, but we just ended up talking on a very human level, you know, and it was amazing. It was life-changing because we looked at not just my work life, but it's at my personal life, you know, my health, my family, my relationships that brought up my habits. I bring that into work. You know, how does it affect work? How do my habits affect work? She would coach me out of being a people pleaser as well. Like she tried to get me to be more assertive and start to practice his stuff. And it was amazing. It was life-changing. And that was an eight-month process. And at the end of it, I became a very different leader. I was able to be happier myself, less stressed. I was about to burn out and manage a team in a better way. And when I left Ixedo to become a leadership coach, I realized that, you know, I wanted to end it on a good note, basically, that I did well. And actually, I gave Michael, who gave me the opportunity in the first place, I let him know six months before that I was leaving, basically, because I'd made that decision. I said, in, in May, told him in, on my birthday, in May, I'm, I'm off, but I'll give you till September, basically, because I respect you and I want to be here and do a good job.
1: That's um, something really, really important about leaving well. Absolutely. I think people are like, I'm just going to leave because Brennan's and match. You know, you can, you can actually leave well because it's also not just because of the networks and the contacts, but actually there's something quite good about it for yourself to be like, I did the right thing. Even though I'm leaving and I'm moving on to something, something new, I can still leave the space in a place that allows people that I'm leaving behind to be able to deal with it in the best possible way. Because it shows you actually care about those people as well. It's not just about you.
0: Absolutely. That's when I knew that it was important to the coaching and that allowed me to know that there was a bigger purpose for me. Without that, I wouldn't have realised, I don't think, you know, and I think that's what the coaching allowed. Look at my dreams. What are your goals? What are your dreams? is like, what dreams? What goals? never looked at my goals. I never created goals. I just worked for the goals of the company rather than myself. What dreams? I and mean, you asked me about me as a teenager. I finally started dreaming after that many years about what I wanted to achieve in my life. And I'm achieving stuff now that I've never dreamt that I thought I would as a teenager. What age did you start dreaming? 41. <laughs> and since then, it's been non-stop.
1: <laughs> you know what? Yeah, there is something. When we talk about, I don't know, you, you, you actually experience this um, as well. When you speak to, I want to say younger people, like from 60 or something, but when I speak to people who are in their 20s and they talk about, oh my gosh, life's so hard. I need to get things figured out. I need to do this, 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 this. And they have so much pressure they put on themselves. And I'm like, you know, life like takes twists and turns and then multiple chapters along the way. You don't have to rush things. You just need to go, have a direction you're heading, And on that direction, you're going to find different things out. And if you get to a point where you're like, no, I need to go and move to a different path, and that's what you do. Don't always have something so wedded. And listen to you say, like, you know what, at 41, I started dreaming again after not dreaming my teenage years. But it wasn't like for you when I had done absolutely nothing. You had achieved some really, really good things, but you recognized there was a new adventure wing for you. Like you started to dream? And like you've been dreaming and achieving those dreams and moving on to more. So there's something really, really powerful about that. That don't let anyone kinda of rush you. It's your own journey. You're gonna get there when you get there.
0: Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. And life changes as well. Like your journey takes different paths as well. And the path that is the most fulfilling is what makes you feel happy and joyous inside as well. And I think we do stuff because we think we have to do stuff. And then we get these responsibilities, right? You know, you get a mortgage, you get a house, you have to pay the bills. It's not easy. And so that's the thing. It's like, we're just driven into this society of like having to just keep up with that world. Right. And it's really hard. It's really hard. And, and changing my career was tough you know, like the first three years was really tough. My revenue is very low. I had to put myself out there and like selling. Oh, I just get like, you know, I get oh, heavy jeebies from selling. Like it's, you know, networking and reaching out to people. You know what it's like, right? It's like, it's so uncomfortable at times to do it. And, but I made some amazing, met some amazing people like you, and networked, you know, I did talks, I did things for free. And eventually when you start getting that feedback, it starts paying off. And in my fourth year, I just thought, I think there was a time during COVID where I had about £500 left in my business account, probably. And I got that Rishi Sunak's business loan, (laughs) basically, as well. It was really easy to get. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And that kept me going for a while. But I thought at that point, I'd have to go back to project management again. And that made me feel really depressed. And I did go back for a bit, actually. I did contract because I had to get my money up, basically. And I worked for an old boss of mine at the BBC. It was amazing because she really helped me and it really helped me when I wasn't so worried about the money, I was able then to focus back on my business again. When I did that, amazing things happened. And over the past year, I've been able to give up that contracting and go back to full time coaching and workshops and that sort of stuff as well. But it's been tough, man. You know, when you change your career, it's tough. It really is. You really have to believe in what you're doing, that self-belief, that resilience you know, coming back from like setbacks and that sort of stuff, and knowing that you are changing someone's life, is driving you forwards. You know. What
1: was your first sales
0: conversation like? It was the most awful thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. All right. So, I went to. Uh, what's that like? Is it Camelot? They um. The, the lottery. The lottery. Yeah. yeah. So. An old uh, boss of mine, he was—he's lovely guy, David Crawford. He is CTO there at the time, and he's like, "Let me." He, he's got, like, "I love what you do." Like, let me introduce you to the HR director, and you know, that was my first big conversation with someone. So, got into the sit down with the HR director, and I was all prepared and stuff. And he looked at me and he said, "What do you know about this? You've only just started." You know, like he basically said. He asked me what books I read, what I knew about this, what I knew about that, my qualifications. He said that he believed that I wouldn't progress any further. And it was really hard to do because he tried it. He said, he tried it. I tried it, do my own business and it didn't work out for me. So I don't think it's going to work out for you. And that was the end of the conversation, basically. I was shook. He was so mean, man. I was shook. Like I was like coming out shaking because I was like, that is the worst conversation I had. And I was like, I can't go through this. You know, like I just want to give up. You know, it's like, it's every conversation could be like this with an HR person. So I've worked HR people for like two, three years, basically, don't speak to any of them. But actually everyone's really nice. Like it was just him, basically. Um, but wow. he was mean, man. He was really mean. He's on my LinkedIn. I, one day I said, I think to myself, right, I'm going to send him a message.
1: Look at me now.
0: <laughs> <Really>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's an ultimate projection. Do
0: you know what I'm saying? Like that is projection 101, man. Like that was crazy. And he was older and stuff, and you know, he was just wasn't. He just didn't give me a chance to speak, really. You know, and that was awful. That that was my first ever sales conversation, man.
1: How do you pick yourself back up from that?
0: I was not. I didn't do anything for like three weeks afterwards. Like I was watching Netflix. I think uh, Grace and Frankie kept me busy for a few weeks, and I sort of sat on my sofa under a blanket for a while. But then I started to network a bit more with younger people. So people who are entrepreneurs, people who are, you know, in their sort of 20s and 30s, who are so much more open to having conversations and that sort of stuff. And what happened was I ended up speaking and offering my services at the Women's to Look Around About in 2017. And that really got my confidence up because I was able to help people, do a careers clinic, do a bit talk people were really listening. It was amazing. It was an amazing opportunity. And I ended up becoming, as Maddox at the time, ended up becoming uh, their coach, basically. And I ended up coaching the, their leadership team. And they're all like much younger, probably just 20, between 25 and 30. Like did really well for themselves. And it was amazing. And the team were amazing. So I think I thought I just, I'll start with small. I'll just start with like entrepreneurs, smaller rather than these big big companies basically that's so that's how I kicked off my career really in leadership coaching. I just started off smaller. I didn't go for the big ones anymore. I was like, let me just start with what I'm doing, get experience, get testimonials, that sort of stuff. And it seemed to work out. More than just worked out.
1: You know? <laughs> so it's more than just worked out, but no but that seems um I guess it's about recalibrating, isn't it? I yeah. be like, okay, how am I going to approach this? Because after a conversation like that, I can only imagine I mean really, it's hard moving 20 years, of leaving 20 years, I'm not going to say behind because you carry that experience with you, we're shifting into a new arena where people don't know you. And the last thing you want is someone who's a lot older to just basically just
0: tear you down. I think people don't... In slated. Learn. But you know what's pay. Okay? Like when I was like in these big corporates and I was getting training or workshops, it was ever delivered by a person of colour they all look the same. It was delivered by either white men or white women. And that was it. I never saw people like me delivering. So again, you're starting from scratch, right? I am thinking, well, you know, and you see some companies that just have the same type of person delivering again and again. And it still happens. People are getting a bit more diverse now, but like it's, it was really difficult back then, you know, to set yourself up as a coach. Uh, Because I just never saw, I never got, that never happened. Was that your experience as well? Like in the workplace?
1: In the workplace, exactly the same. I think you get to the point where you don't want to think about it because you don't think it's, it's possible for you to have any people of color who are going to come in and do any workshops. It literally was always the same kind of organizations time and time again. And think when I stepped into this world, it was very, very similar. I remember my first big national conference I went to, probably about 600 people in the room and I looked around. I'm like, I'm not a black person here, yeah. and these lot are really little, a lot older than me. Wow. And I remember stepping out and I called my wife. I was like, This is as bad as it was when I <laughs> worked in, in corporate. And she was like, Are you going to stay? I'm like, I've paid my money. I'm, I'm definitely staying. <laughs> but I remember coming to that. I was like, Man, I don't feel like I fit into, into Raman. To be fair, I did it because we had a lot of different experiences, different approaches, but it's even in this exact... So I can understand why so with, I want to say, as much privilege as that person that you spoke to, felt like, oh, I should be able to do this, and he didn't do it. He carried that, his insecurities, and just, oh, what's this new, young, brown woman think she's going to do, and I couldn't do, how dare you? She kinda, and he gave you all of that barrels, both barrels, which is, is so sort of wrong.
0: It was so... I was shook, you know, like it took time for me to get my confidence back up. And, you know, during that time, you get rejected a lot. You reach out to people, people don't reply to you. You have to keep going and you have to sort of have that self-belief that you're good at what you do and this is your purpose as well. But if it's sort of challenging, then you're not really learning either, you know? So it's having those sort of stretch goals as well. Like and it's really hard, isn't it? I think that's why people sort of stay where they are sometimes. And uh, because it's easier. Of course it's easier, right? Like, but when you are challenging yourself, it's super hard. But if you're doing what you believe in, it's definitely worth it in the end as well. And the feedback that I get now, like when I work with these different clients, especially after the pandemic and with Black Lives Matter as well, yeah, companies are actively seeking out people of colour, right? To kind of deliver and that sort of stuff, which is great for us, for sure. But it came quite late, I think. You know, like it's still there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of this still... There should be more opportunities, I think, as well for us to be able to like deliver. I think it's getting better, but I think it's all work to do.
1: Yeah, it's progress at snail's pace. <laughs> <laughs> I used to uh, you that I'm saying that soon. I know it's not a popular opinion to say out loud. and I know I've had some to say this in the past, but I say it, it's it's a snail's pace because even with the like, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, what you've done had is a lot of white institutions who were not doing this work now stepped into that space. And because they already had the connections, it's like, oh, my friends, oh, this is another part of our organization we do. Yeah, we're going to do it with you. It's very much similar to what you have where a lot of leaders, in particular, where they, re- they do a lot of referrals and they refer their friends and their friends keep on coming in. Well, their friends come from the same background, schools from them and that's why you don't really see a lot of change in those organizations especially at that level because it's just the same thing the same wheelhouse hospital around around the same so what I you found this what I found myself is having some conversations organizations who either were not really willing to do the work i.e. they wanted something and delivered it like a month or in a nightly workshop session which was never going to happen or they weren't willing to pay for it or it was just that general tick-in-the-box kind of exercise and when you're back with all those different things, are like you very much what well, I'm value aligned and I want to make a difference and make an impact for the long term, not just for the short term. I don't want you to just use my name to make you feel good with other people who are calling you out. You thought you stepped back from that. There are still other people who wanted to step into that. And so it was validating those firms who have all gone quiet now because they've all got their, <laughs> they've took their books. Some people got their money and they've gone about their business. So it's how do you. Just keep on having those conversations and making the real impact and difference, which is why you stepped into coaching.
0: Correct. Correct. And, you know, the feedback that I get now is like, especially from, you know, women of colour, like, they're, they're like, it's so nice to have stuff delivered from someone who looks like you, basically. Do you know what I mean? And that's very common feedback that I get as well. And I'm so, so very blessed and so very lucky that the people that I do work with are, you know. At the forefront of what they do. They are diverse. They wanna, they genuinely want to help other people. And I think I've realized that, you know, like not every company's right for you. Like it's just the way it is, right? But when you find those clients that are really passionate about what you do and respect you for that as well, it's the most amazing thing, you know. So all those conversations, maybe that, you know, I had when I was networking and I was getting rejected, actually, three, four years later, they're getting in touch again. Say, hey. By the way, like looking for a coach, I thought of you, you know, kind of thing. That's like, wow. actually that networking has paid off, you know, like that hard work, that networking, going out there and meeting people did pay off in the end, you know, but it's, um, it's wonderful to, to just make an impact on someone's life. Like it's just makes me so happy. It just, it's so joyful to be able to see someone progress and suddenly something wakes up in their, in their heads and, you know, they're, they're just doing stuff that they've always wanted to do. And it's like, wow this is what I do it for you know and it got to a point where I was getting quite exhausted from it though as well you know I don't know if you ever sort of suffered from fatigue from coaching as well but I ended up I see loved doing the one-to-ones but now opening up and doing like 30 people at a time is also amazing because you're you know that impacting more people than just one you know with what you're saying what you're doing and that sort of stuff and it's just just so wonderful
1: How do you look after your better your I And that's a massive area for you. You just talked about getting too fatigued earlier. You talked about getting close to burden before you went into coaching and, and had that, that eight month program, which kind of turned your life around for you as well. So, how do you look after your better health?
0: I exercise. So, I moved to the countryside last year and I could never swim before. I don't think lots, lots of people, brown people can swim to be forever.
1: 100%? I ain't going that one.
0: i just not taught, man. It's like, it was simple. But I got some lessons and now I can do a pretty good swimmer, a front calling. I swim outside. I did lake swimming the other day as well, which is amazing. i got a wetsuit and everything.
1: You're doing levels on this, like, forget the, forget the pool, but lake's like,
0: okay. It was nuts, man. It was, it was amazing. It was like so exhilarating. But scary, of course, as well. So I exercise. I try to be mindful as well. So coaching on self awareness and, and, you know, understanding self awareness is so critical to your mental health because then you're realizing once you're getting to a spin or like you're managing your thoughts, your emotions. So I'm able to really practice that myself as well and understand if I'm not feeling good, then I need to take some time out, take the afternoon off, you know, like really look after myself. So I do that as well. I do overwork sometimes, of course, but because you're self employed, you can sometimes take a day off you know, on a Friday or something and just chill out a little bit. So I do various things. I think it's just having that balance. I'm also doing an MSc in the psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College, which is amazing. And it's taught me so much about mental health because what I realised that when you coach, everyone has suffered from mental health issues. Whether it's anxiety, stress, burnout, OCD, whatever it is, everyone suffers from some sort of mental health. We just don't speak about it enough. And I want to learn more about it so I can help people a bit more.
1: Do you find it leaders are more open now to have that conversation within their organisation around
0: mental health? I think so. It's a long way to go. It's interesting. I've coached people from organisations that are doing amazing products, you know, such as mental health or whatever it is. And, but they have such a toxic work culture. And so they're not looking after their own people, you know, in that way. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, no matter where you are, what company you're in, if the leadership team is not empathic, is not, as they think about the goals or their profits, it's going to trickle down to everyone else and they're not going to look after their staff. And, and I certainly, when I was in the corporate world, no one ever talked about mental health, ever. And I think it's happening a bit more now, people are more open to it, but even now there's such a stigma around it. You know, I think it's really important that people raise up the issue, and I think maybe because of COVID, and the pandemic, people are more open to speaking about it. And certainly, the younger generations are definitely more open to speaking about it as well. But I sort of think to myself, man, how did our parents cope with all this? Depression just didn't exist with us; it existed with them and generations before. How did they cope with mental health? But they just they got on with it, and it caused so many issues, though.
1: But what it up because. You couldn't express yourselves. I mean, you weren't worried hard enough in the environments that they were operating in, let alone to start to have the audacity to talk about mental health. Like, what's, what's that about? And I know in, in, in our communities, so in both the, the Black community and Asian community, there, there was a lot of stigma. There still is around to talk about mental health. And for you to have that conversation, it's like, you know, it's not just about you, it's about your family, it's about the community, it's about all those different layers that came on top of that. So it's like, well, if I'm going to have to traverse through all of that, I don't want to bring shame on my family, I don't want to bring shame on my community. Therefore, I'm going to internalise it. But then that internalising meant it manifests itself in other destructive ways sometimes.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, I can't imagine how tough it was for that generation And you're right. And then it causes issues and they have kids themselves. Like it just trickles down these mental health issues. And I think it's something which needs to be looked at a bit more in society. It's under resourced, massively under resourced still. And there's so much more to be done with the governments to kind of put more money into like, you know, mental health funding. You know, it's interesting. There's uh, no word in Hindi for depression. So when they speak about people, they call them pagal and pagal means crazy. You know, it's a country of billions of people. And, you know, like, it's it just blows my mind away that we just, we just call each other crazy, you know, like to define something that someone's going through.
1: I can relate to that because I think, when I think back growing up, if you ever told me someone has got mental health issues, my automatic assumption with the word would have been crazy. It was never about how someone was feeling. It was never about their emotion, regulation, all that kind of stuff. It was, nope, there's something wrong with that person. That person's crazy
0: absolutely they've tried to cope with it and all of a sudden it's just got too much and actually it's really interesting because in research most mental health issues occur or 85% occur before the age of 18 so they start occurring in teenagers when you're younger but they don't manifest until later and that is something which i think we don't deal with enough right i mean this is another topic but like just getting schools to teach in a different way it would really help kids. I and mean, a lot of the stuff should be done at home, of course. But not enough has being done in society, I don't think, to help these children. And you can see it now. You know, you can see how many people, how many children are suffering from anxiety, depression, stress, all sorts of stuffs coming out, you know, and, uh, eating disorders. And in the States, what they do is just give tablets to people. They diagnose young children with bipolar and give them tablets. You know, it's nuts.
1: It's a topic that's really really my behind. It frustrates me. The lack of funding that's made available to such a massive, massive area that keeps on growing and growing and growing and yet you see money spent on foolishness and you're like how does that make any sense whatsoever?
0: It doesn't right and that's it's it's, it's painful to see you know you sort of think is it just us that's having looking at this in this way (laughs) to other people or people just living in you know blinkered ways and just getting their lives and just cracking on with stuff right it's less painful if you do that I suppose to be not that aware of it, right? As well. And it's just like, I hope it does change. And it will take a time, it'll be generations, I think, before we can get a grasp on, on dealing with mental health, I think. But if I can just help one person to be able to deal with their mental health, I've done something and I've done something worth, worth it as well. So it's kind of like, you know, taking my knowledge and really helping with my leadership coaching, really helping them to push forward and overcoming and managing their mental health issues. If it's serious and obviously it's time to see a doctor or a therapist or whatever it is. But sometimes you can manage your anxiety and stress with certain exercises and tools and techniques. And it's just being able to go deeper into my coaching, I think. And that's why I think I'm going to do that mental health degree.
1: It's part of your mental health is also learning how to be able to change some of the negative patterns and behaviours. And the, the book that you had, the audio book you created, part uh, of the new really really taps into that element of overcoming those like program behaviors like unlocking those different things and finding finding the purpose and i was curious as to what are some of the things that people can do that you found that either work for you or work for others that can start to help them to understand how to be able to unlock some of those behaviors and to find a purpose because that's a massive topic as
0: well when i coach i always thought with journaling as well, I always recommend journaling to, or free writing to my coaches, because you want to get what's going on in here out on paper, and be able to like really understand your triggers, your patterns, and that sort of stuff as well. And when you start understanding your patterns and triggers, you're able to manage it a bit better. And I think if you can, you know, if you find it hard to like digest what's going on inside your head, then it's really, really valuable to put it on paper first. So I think journaling really helps. I've already already suggested um, daily reflections. So understanding, you know, like we focus so much on the negative in our lives. So daily reflections is, you know, one thing that's made you happy, one thing that you're grateful for, one thing you've accomplished and being able to really give yourself a pat on the back because often we just don't do that and appreciate yourself a bit more about what you're achieving, what allow you to kind of be in a better state of mind as well going forwards. Like There's other stuff Like I was reading this amazing book called The Body Keeps Score. It's about trauma and in it, it talks about yoga, it talks about mindfulness there is scientific research backing that you know doing yoga and mindfulness will really help you manage your emotions. It's also community as well. Like we are human beings, and if we're not part of the community or part of a community, we find it really hard. And I think loneliness is, is often really, really difficult. It's Mental Health Awareness Week this week, and loneliness is a topic, but loneliness is a massive issue because that honestly causes people to die early because they're not around other people, and so. Being around like-minded people, being around your community, around friends, and being able to manage yourself internally, regulate yourself as well. You know, emotional regulation is really hard. I mean, like, you can't say to someone, right? If you get angry, you just need to like chill out, whatever it is. And, but like, you have to really practice emotional regulation, don't you? As well, to actually get to a point where you're feeling okay again. And I give the example of someone driving, for example, someone cuts you up. Some people will stay angry for days and days and days about that same situation. Some people just let it go. That happens. I'm just going to crack on the rest of my life or my week, whatever it is. And that's that's how that to regulate stuff because all you're doing is harming yourself, right? When you can't manage those emotions, it's just harming yourself.
1: I actually define loneliness and I will caveat that with the reason I'm asking that is in a world where we are so connected, we are also so disconnected. And even during the pandemic and everyone finally learned how to use Zoom (laughs) (laughs) and other different things because you didn't didn't necessarily have a choice. And people still had that sense of community, especially when we were all locked out, we couldn't go and physically see each other. But yeah, even before that and and after that, there's definitely been a lot more research that has shown that even in a technological advanced world, where you've got people now going into metaverses and playing on necklaces and, and having holographic effects and all that kind of stuff. There is still a need for a real human connection and loneliness is actually growing and growing and growing. So I'm curious as to how do you define loneliness?
0: Yeah, it's being able to, like, even with social media, they're sort of not deep and meaningful relationships necessarily, right? Go to the metaverse and you know, you're looking at Instagram and Facebook and that sort of stuff. And I know that Facebook actually has helped some of the older community, to be fair, to reconnect with other people, which has been beautiful. So I've seen that, which has been amazing. And people are connecting around the world and whatever it is. So there are some advantages to social media, of course. But the disadvantage is that you can just rely on social media, but you're still on your own. You know, there, there is no, there's an empty feeling of not being in deep and meaningful relationships with different types of people. And I think that's where loneliness occurs because you're not able to share your experiences with someone else in that way. So really, I think it's the lack of those relationships, the lack of community that causes that loneliness, you know, and it's easier not to go out there. It's easier to stay on your phone and connect with social media. But ultimately, that doesn't help you. That makes things worse because you feel like, you know, you're comparing yourself to other people as well. Look at their amazing life. I've got nothing, you know, like that sort of stuff occurs. So it is being able to, you know, have that community and with that community, you find purpose as well, because you're around people talking and connecting and in a community, you know, you can work together to find a purpose. And I know that connecting with you, connecting with other coaches, it's been amazing because we, we have such amazing, incredible, deep conversations. It's the like best thing ever in the world. And even though I've seen you in so long. Because we met that first time.
1: (laughs) We're going to change that.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Because we met each other and we connected on such a great way, we were able to speak in a deep way instantly. And that's not changed over the years that we've known each other. And that's a beautiful thing. I love that.
1: And I've got me thinking around for people who are lonely, who are by themselves and are dealing with some of the issues we've already previously talked about one of the biggest things that can come up is that inner voice and that inner critic. When you talked about that easy, how it is to compare yourself to people, especially if you're on social media. How do you, how did you deal with your inner critic?
0: It was really hard. I didn't even know I had it in the critic. Do you know what I mean? Until I actually realised that this happens in every human being, basically. Like, you know, you sort of get on the tube and wonder what everyone's thinking about. I sort of like observe people now like oh my god like people look like her are in pain sometimes you know like it's really hard to see but I became well because of my coaching I became aware that there's obviously an inner critic and an inner voice but what I realized that inner critic was generally lying to me about me basically so I had to realize I had to like present myself with evidence what evidence do I have that this thought is actually true and it wasn't true and because of the being aware of your thoughts and self-awareness practice that I have, I was able to manage that. So when it comes in, comes creeping in, and it always does, it's never going to go away, the inner critic. When it comes creeping in, I start to remember what I've done, what I've achieved, who I am as a person, my values. And it's hard work, right? It's hard work doing that that practice, but it gets easier. It gets much, much easier when you start practicing these these things because you start you're able to know that your inner critic isn't something that's healthy for you, and it's also lying to you. So where's the evidence that it's right? I mean, And the inner critic of the inner voice isn't always that bad, right? Like it's, it's something that you have to listen to and make decisions with. Like if you're you know, in a dangerous situation, you have to be able to listen to your inner voice as well. But it's the inner critic that demeans you or criticizes you that you have to sort of manage and try and ignore almost as well and keep pushing forwards.
1: Is it easier to ignore your inner critic?
0: When you're aware of it, yes, okay. mean, it's becoming aware of it first. It's just a hard part. I mean, it's amazing. We know how important self-awareness is, right? But who practices self-awareness really on a regular basis? I don't know many people who do. And when, when I coach it or deliver webinars on it or, you know, going to sessions and workshops, everyone's like, wow, man, this is deep. it's part, part of us. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's not a therapy, it's, like, it's just something you need to be aware of.
1: I think it's, it's a, I say it's an excuse that people generally give themselves to not go deep.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: And to, it's like, and, and, oh, I need to go therapy to go to go get deep, or I need to go coaching to get deep, or I need someone else, rather than, like you said, practicing that self-awareness for yourself. work because it starts with that recognition. Of what's really going on with me? Am I struggling? Am I close to burnout? Are there issues with my mental health and my state? Life could be great, but it's having that regular self-check and that regular conversation with yourself. I think it's really, really important.
0: It is, it is, and I think that if we don't do that, then we're we're left in a state of again anxiety, depression, you know, things like that do form. That's part of your thought processes, right? As well, and if you're not able to manage it, then these things start occurring. And you're right; people think it's too painful to deal with. I don't want to deal with my thoughts and my emotions. It's too much for me. And that's where like, you know, people drink alcohol, you know, take drugs, you know, live hedonistic lifestyles because they just can't deal with their emotions. And we see that a lot. We see that a lot. I I do hope that, you know, we see that change of, you know, workplaces really embracing, you know, that type of awareness and and encouraging their employees as part of their mental health, or coaching programs, but also being able to do that with younger people as well and help them to, to get there too. Because like I said, you know, those mental health issues occur when you're young and they manifest when you're older.
1: Speaking of hopes and you're, you being a dreamer now, I'm curious, <laughs> what, what is, what is, what's the big dream
0: now? I've got, I actually got a few dreams now because like I, I'm a bit of a geek. <laughs> I, <like it. laughs> I always love to take my practice into schools as young people. Now I feel a bit more financially stable and getting regular clients and that sort of stuff. I love what I'm doing, but I think I could do more and take that practice into different areas, basically. I'd love to do more audio courses and audio books as well. You know, when I did Power Than You, it was just something I really wanted to do. You got picked up by Scribd, which is a San Francisco-based company, and and they they would love more content as well. So I'd love to make time to kind of do more audio books, but maybe write a book as well one day as well you know like that would be an amazing experience i just haven't got the capacity at the moment but i'd love to do that one day but also thinking about you know my life and how i can help i had this idea of like opening up a nursery but like an emotional intelligence based nursery if that makes sense now it's all these like these amazing buildings in japan where the kids just run around and like this is amazing but like really being able to get in there with young children and being able to like teach in way that not they've not been taught before as well. But that's just like, I don't know if that will ever happen. But yeah, it was something which I was been thinking about for the past few years as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I, so I'm a, I I was wanting to, as so a professor said, write a vision and make it play. And I think for me it's around you, you declaring right, what you want to do and working the minimum towards it, which you really start to do in So. I'm sure this is going to happen, Um, you know, you you said it, you declared it, you put it out, you
0: know. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that'd be amazing. I mean, from a a young age, to be able to have such an impact in the way that they are guided and molded and shaped and to have a real understanding of their emotions,
0: man, that would be very different. Wouldn't it be amazing? It'd be incredible to be able to make that impact. And, you know, there's great work being done in the States and stuff, but yeah, there's a lot of issues in the States as well with anxiety and depression for, for, for young children and that sort of stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd love to, even if it's just like one or two schools, just starting there, being able to like, just to kind of get in there and, and deliver stuff. Because I know what I've done can be translated for a younger audience, for sure. You know.
1: And the last question is always going to be, how do you define leadership?
0: I define leadership by being able to lead yourself first, basically. So, if you're a leader of you, then you are a leader, basically, and you are every day, every single day, being a leader and being kind of. If you're in charge of your life, you are that leader. You reach your goals, your purpose, your values. You are a leader, basically. So, I don't think you should be defined by line management or a leader in a company. You could be the leader of yourself, and if you are the leader of yourself you'll be in a great state to lead other people but also have an amazing life as well
1: just yes, thank you thank you for for sharing your, your story your journey and for sharing you like I said right from the start our like is absolutely amazing you just had a little snippet of the uh, <laughs> kind of value and the insights and the approach that she has and I was seeing more details about how you can get hold of her, contact her, work with her will be available in the show notes because she's someone that you definitely need in your organisations and for anyone in nurseries who are listening to this shit <laughs> just, just reach out <laughs> try a different, try different approach you know? I love that
0: plug I love that plug <laughs> so funny I love it <laughs> it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always thank you
1: thank you very much this is Everyday
0: Leadership